Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms held wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge on the Faith Radio Network. If you missed hour one, I invite you to grab the podcast a little bit later at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app, which I would encourage you to download and make use of. There you go. It's called Faith Radio. It's not hard to find. You can download it at your app store. You can go to my Twitter feed where I put the QR code in. Um, it's it's on the website, MyFaithRadio.com, how to download the app. You could probably just ask your virtual assistant, that artificial intelligence thing, whose name might be Siri or something else. Siri, enable Faith Radio or download the Faith Radio app or all kinds of things like that. Okay, find Mornings with Carmen. I'm pretty sure she responds to all of those things. And she is not a she, by the way, but there you go. All right, so what is happening today? I was intrigued this morning by something that, Johnny Erickson Tata has written. It is posted at thegospelcoalition.org. Um, oh, again, to get access to all of the things that I make reference to during the show, you should get the show notes. Those are attached to the podcast, um, which, again, you can get at myfaithradio.com. But now I sound redundant. So here's what Johnny Erickson Tata has to say in her piece. It's, it leads off with this. <clears throat> I sometimes wonder, who am I? And what have you brought me this far for? Lately, I've been whispering that question from First Chronicles seventeen sixteen. Again, this is Johnny Erickson Tata speaking, um, quoting now uh, King David. Then King David said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Johnny says, Who am I to enjoy a platform on national radio for 40 years? Or who am I that I should be so blessed in marriage to Ken? Um, how did I ever have the strength to survive 55 years as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair? She says, the truth is, I don't have the strength. I still wake up every morning needing God desperately. Like David, I often confess I am poor and needy. Perhaps that's how God brought me thus far. I cannot say, but I do know that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth and strengthen those who, whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is searching high and low for weak people who love him so that he can pour into them his strength. Maybe that's my story. But how I arrived here is not for me to say. I just keep praising my sovereign God with every milestone I pass. She says, it's the noble cause of Christ to which I have dedicated myself for decades. And I can't think of anything that gives me more joy. Yet as I reach the milestone of 55 years of quadriplegia, not to mention two bouts of cancer, severe breathing issues, COVID-19 and chronic pain, I hold tightly to Acts twenty twenty four. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. To that I say, amen, amen, and amen. What is your testimony? 
Um, how has God transformed your heart or changed your attitude or what has God shown you um, through his faithfulness year over year? Um, those are good, good things to be thinking about today. Um, there is a state of emergency in some of the nation's largest cities and now in three of the nation's most populous states, New York, Illinois and California. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency on Monday over the ongoing monkeypox outbreak following the same move by Illinois and earlier um, by New York. These three states have a reported 47 percent of America's infections. Um, Monkeypox is a virus that spreads through prolonged and close skin to skin contact Um, and um, it's important to recognize that although the virus can affect anyone, um, it is uh, mainly been transmitted between men who have sex with other men. And so when you read things like uh, members of the government saying the monkeypox outbreak is an emergency and we need to use every tool we have to control it, you should ask. Um, there's actually an incredibly simple way to do that. But of course, no one is suggesting that men stop having sex with other men. Yeah, that leads us to the moral and ethical conversation before us as a people. We're going to talk with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association next um, across a range of health headlines. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without pride. Now I Dr. Brett Nix is back from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Hey, Brett, good morning. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Um, talk with us about conscience protections that have been removed by the Biden administration. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I want everybody to think for a second about the quality of health care that you would love to have. And we hear a lot about these terms related to the access to quality of care. And most of us, if we have a doctor, we want them to act in a moral and ethical basis, right? So that we can have an abundant life uh, and know that we can tr- have substantial amounts of trust in the decision-making that we make alongside of our physicians. And some of you may recall back in 2019, there were federal regulations that were enacted as part of a change in the Affordable Care Act, or the Accountable Care Act as well, um, that navigated medical professionals and allowed them protections from unfounded discrimination if you decided that based on your moral and ethical principles that you are being asked to do something that you should not do. And as of yesterday, uh, there is a process right now where HHS is proposing to go in and change some of the things that have been altered in 2019, specifically to add in the content of gender identity Uh, as well as pregnancy termination or abortion back into the definition of sexual discrimination. And so one of the challenges that we see here is we already have to understand something. We are still in this process of coming out of COVID in the American healthcare system. We're really under duress. If anyone works in healthcare, if you've gone to see your doctor, if you've been in a hospital, you'll notice that while people work diligently through the pandemic, many of the physicians, many of the nurses uh, in healthcare careers have really left the industry uh, because it has just been uh, really a very difficult time and for many have been challenged. And when you look at situations like this, you may find professionals in healthcare that are being asked to say, hey, 
if I'm going to be tasked now to do something that I believe may cause harm, I'm called to do no harm. I'm called to serve the patient in an ethical and an evidence-based medical process. This type of emotion and proposal that HHS is pushing forward may actually exacerbate our crisis further than we see right now. It may cause individuals who say, I can't practice in this environment knowing full well my ethic and moral basis of things tells me I can't serve in this. And if now I'm going to have the risk of being under a discrimination lawsuit, uh, I might actually have to leave this. And so, you know, when you look at it, the Christian Medical Dental Association, Catholic Medical Association, and many others look at this as really a, a concerning process where you're forcing medical professionals to perform uh, things like abortion and maybe maybe uh, gender transition surgeries or is it just uh, medical assisted suicide that are really against their moral and religious beliefs. And in doing so, what we may end up finding is instead of increasing access for care for all, which is the intent of this, we may be forcing more people to not enter healthcare or to actually leave healthcare as we've seen because of the pandemic, which increases the risk that most people may not actually have direct access to healthcare in the manner that we would like. So it's very concerning to me. It's very concerning to me as well. Um, I don't want my doctor to think they are forced to do anything, right? Uh, and so, um, I mean, I want them to be, you know, joyfully offering um, the services that they feel are the best, you know, for me based on, you know, all the knowledge that they have. And then if they are not in a position to do um to do something that they know is an option, but they're not willing to do, then refer me to somebody else. Like, why should every doctor be required to do everything? That doesn't even, I mean, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me on the face of it. No, you're right. And, you know, here's the beautiful thing as it relates to healthcare. People go in it to serve. People will go in to serve humanity. And what I love about my job as an emergency physician 24-7, 365. It doesn't matter whether you can pay. I don't care about your background. I don't care about what you look like or otherwise. You are welcome to come and see me in the emergency department, and I will do the absolute best I can. And what I would love is to have strong medical conscience rights and religious freedom protection so that when I go in, I can go ahead and provide the the most uh, evidence-based practice, the most compassionate care to anybody who seeks help, advice, or guidance. That is the beauty of medicine. And allowing us to, to, to live in that space within a medical calling is wonderful. When we put restrictions on that, that's where we start to see the compromises of care. Mm. Um, all right. So I want to know and meet and celebrate and talk to Dr. Kristen Collier, the assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan, um, who, you know, gave this uh, gave this white coat um, ceremony message, uh, you know, people walked out because she's pro-life, not that that's what she was talking about. Can you just tell us what, what is this uh, white coat ceremony, just so those of us who don't have a white coat can know a little bit more about it? So each university, as, as students go through medical school, get to the point where they are transforma- transforming from their, their first couple of years, if you will, of more book study, of the cognitive basis, the science of medicine, stepping into the service practice of medicine. Uh, Now, again, you'll see this at variant levels and at variant times, and many schools have integrated this at an earlier point. But commonly, as they enter their third year, they move into mostly all clinical rotations. And in doing so, there's a white coat ceremony that has been held for a long period of time and recognize that a medical student's white coat is very different than a physician's white coat, which is just it's the first step in, if you will. And there's a dialogue around this, which is simply the concept that 
you are now entering into a, a privileged uh, role. You are stepping into an incredible responsibility where you are tasked and called uh, to come alongside your patients at the best and the worst parts of their life and to help foster growth and opportunity through the practice of medicine. And each of these ceremonies are really beautiful and wonderful to see uh, because there's something representative of being able to step in where I've accomplished this cognitive understanding and now it's the opportunity to step into people's lives and practice and learn and, and go forward. And each institution will do this. And you know, the bottom line as it relates to this is really that unique opportunity to say, uh, as a physician, I will do no harm. I will do what's best for the patient. I will educate. And as doing so, I will make sure that I am educated in their best practices and that I understand what it means to come alongside my patients, uh, both in an empathetic and a compassionate manner. Uh, and these ceremonies are done at all medical schools uh, in that transition period. And for many, uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible moment, but it's also that first step, if you will, into the next step of medical practice. All right. We just want to celebrate that the University of Michigan Medical School handled the controversy over this pro-life speaker um, by, you know, canceling the cancellation. They did not succumb. So I just wanted to celebrate that today. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find Brett at brettnixmd.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do every morning on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. I don't want you to miss any of it. So check out the free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. One of the things I would like for you to consider is becoming a Faith Radio ambassador. We talk about walking our faith out into the world that God, that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus, well, that's because we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You can become a Faith Radio ambassador today and help us get the word out to others about this and other programs on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, we will supply everything that you need to share with others, and you can sign up to be a Faith Radio ambassador at MyFaithRadio.com. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Hey, um, talk with us about getting back to school. We get You got a checklist for us. You know, I love back to school, and I hate to say it. When I was a kid, perhaps for me, one of the greatest things, while summer was wonderful, you had a job, you were able to get some money, you were able to, uh, you know, for me, the typical thing was save up for some fireworks for the 4th of July, have enough money for the fair, and buy your school clothes. There are certain things that when August rolls around, all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it's almost here. And, you know, most people think about school supplies and checking that box and making sure that, hey, my kids have grown over the summer. Do their clothes still fit? Uh, but I want to give you five things that I think are really essential. And this is true of any parent, regardless of how young your, chi your child is or whether you've got teenagers at home. And the first thing, the first and foremost thing is really, can you reestablish your bedtime routine? recognize, yes, summer, we have a lot more light, people are out at a later time, and maybe our sleep patterns have been a little bit uh, disconnected, if you will. But I wanna remind people before the week of school, that week prior to, start building this up and recognize really two simple things. Uh, the amount of sleep really does matter. And if you have kids that are under the age of 12, they're in these growing stages, obviously. Uh, so you'll see tremendous amount of growth. Uh, literature would suggest they need between nine and 12 hours. That's a lot, and we don't seem to get that. If you've got teenagers, if you can get them to that eight to 10 hour threshold, depending on their activity level, that's incredibly important. But one thing I wanna throw at you, which is not commonly discussed, 
we need to get to the point where they're away from screens and away from TV for a minimum, a minimum of an hour before they actually go to bed. Uh, so that's a big piece you need to build in. So that's number one. Number two is a simple thing, which is too often when they go in for their annual exams or they have to go see their physician for uh, medical screening for sport applications, we need to make sure that we ask them to do an, an eye check. Uh, visual health of your eye goes so far because it has everything to do with performance in the classroom. It has to do with even simple things of strain, which leads to headaches, which leads to tension and anxiety. Uh, so the simple process of hit, when you see your doctor just saying, hey, can we check their eyes to make sure they're still 20-20? That leads us, obviously, when you see your doctor to the physical exam piece, which is, hey, we have baseline vaccines for a reason. Measles, mumps, rubella, our tetanus, our diphtheria, pertussis, these are the combination vaccines that we typically see. And many of them, as we get in, especially uh, depending on your state and the timing of it, right around that age 10 or age 11 is where they get their booster for tetanus and many others. And these are things that are preventable. These are things that have been around for a long time. We know that they're safe. We need to make sure that we maintain this, especially as we've gone through the pandemic and a lot of processes, especially related to standard vaccines have been missed. One of the ones that I love more than anything else is breakfast. And too often kids wake up, they're tired, they're grumpy, they're not ready for school, but we have to get them out the door and breakfast is missed. And one of the things that we know that is true is if uh, we have a normal meal at dinner time and there's this long period of fasting through the night, which is very healthy for our bodies, we need to start, we need to rev our metabolism. And I'm not talking about a large breakfast. I'm talking about something that is healthy in the morning to get them started. And why is this important? Not only does it help the brain, not only does it help metabolism, but we know by literature that it decreases their BMI, their risk for obesity by starting their day outright. And the last one, which I think is perhaps the most important, number five, is managing expectations. Too often as parents, we make the assumption that they're gonna step into school and they know the process and everything else. But I want to think about how we lead out of a pandemic. We've been navigating through a pandemic, but as we lead out of it, we need to recognize that we should have a discussion with the kids just saying, hey, what does this year look like for you? You know, what are you looking, to, what are you looking forward to? What are you anxious about? Um, and how do we live as we navigate this with our kids? Uh, because having that conversation beforehand oftentimes lessens the anxiety load, but also allows us to be engaged before the first day uh, and coming alongside them really is a, a manner of being supportive. And quite honestly, it's just called being a parent. I love it. Um, I'm also focused on um, kids who are sort of like in proximity to us, but they're not our kids and making sure that everybody's got what they need going back. I just, I'm just recognizing there's just a lot of, a lot of kids for whom there's a gap between you know, what would be the best way to start back to school and, and how right now they would be starting back to school. And so if there's a kid in proximity to you and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, they're, they did grow over the summer and their family's not in a position to, uh, you know, buy a couple of school back to school outfits. Or there is a kid whose family I know is going to have a hard time um, paying for lunch this year now that, uh, you know, the, the free COVID lunches are a thing of the past. Or there's, um, you know, I'm just aware that there's a kid who's not going to have school supplies. Like those are some easy things that you can do wherever you are, age of stage of life, whether you have kids of your own or not, um, to alleviate some of the pressure that some kids are experiencing right now, causing them anxiety instead of anticipation in returning to school. So, Brett, I know you echo all of that. Hey, um, talk with us um, really quickly here. We got like a minute left. Um, why we got to get our kids off the couch? 
Oh, my goodness gracious. There is a, a, a fascinating article that came out of France, and they're basically making this dialogue around kids, and they're calling them couch potato kids. So this study in France was, as you might expect, that according to researchers, if you have overweight youngsters, uh, well, guess what? They're at risk for developing high blood pressure as early as the age of six. And so that is fascinating. And we could go down that whole health piece because we know hypertension leads to diabetes and obesity leads to the cardiovascular issues and all of these things, which we know is just a horrible expense on the body, let alone the healthcare system. But what we know to be true are very simple ways to counteract that, right? Number one, they say, hey, these are the kids that are at risk. They have too little play, not just structured play, not going out to camps, not going out for sports per se, but just structured and unstructured play. The thing is that many of us, when we were kids, you'd have breakfast in the summertime. If you didn't have a job or you weren't picking berries or whatever it was, depending on your age, you would go outside and you would come back in. You would come back in, you know, maybe at lunchtime, have lunch and go back out. And you would play this unstructured play built, uh, built as concepts of, of social engagement, of emotional engagement, and, of course, the physical nature of this. And, of course, the other side of the, the uh, paradigm here is too much screen time, too much sitting. And, you know, to break this down, all the stuff that we know to be true, the simple things that might be able to be applied, they say a minimum of one hour of vigorous exercise per day and less than two hours of sedentary activity between a screen or a TV or otherwise. I'll tell you what, in society right now, I think that you will see exponential amounts of time in the sedentary space and very little in the, in the vigorous space. But we're not even seeing kids just playing and engaging. I think the pandemic has definitely shifted that because of the amount of social isolation and inability for many in uh, large urban environments to get even outside. Uh, but we really need to take ownership as parents. We need to demonstrate this and we really need to be able to step into it. This is not just about food. This is about activity. This is about socialization. This is about engagement. Uh, and I think that it really comes back to simple goal setting, right? It's less about the weight. We're talking about obesity in these kids that leads to hypertension. But let's find activities that they're excited about and say, hey, in three months, let's go do this. And in order to do that, we need to practice this exercise or this level of activity every day. You know, set some enthusiastic goals around that and the weight will come off and the hypertension will go away. But this is, I think, a call for parents. We have to be agents of change in this, uh, not just on top of our kids, but we need to be the ones who are demonstrating and living out what we believe. And that can be so true, not just in the area here around uh, obesity and hypertension, but what you talked about earlier with Acts 2024, 20, where we have to testify to the goodness of God's grace. And in living through that, we should be having an abundant life that our kids can see and that can, they can emulate as well. Amen. All right. If you've got specific questions for Dr. Brett Nix, you can connect with him at brettnixmd.com. Brett, as always, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Carmen, always a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. Hey, let's take a break um, really quickly here for Breakpoint. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaVerge, and this is Faith Radio. So when we talk about being pro-life and we talk about being pro-life from conception to natural death, um, what does that really look like in terms of the options that a woman has um, and who's influencing her decision to carry her baby to term and then raise that child? The people of Kansas are going to be the first in the nation to vote on abortion rights. It's going to happen today. They're going to vote on Protections for preborn people following the ruling of the Supreme Court overturning the Roe and Casey decisions. 
Um, and so let's be praying for um, the people of Kansas today as they go to the polls on this topic. We're going to talk with John Knox. He's the I know you hear that name and you're like, surely Carmen is going to ask him about his namesake. But we are going to talk to John Knox. Uh, he is the CEO of the Opt Institute, Opt for, you know, like options, the Opt Institute. And we're going to talk about um, who women trust the most in helping them to make their decisions related to pregnancy um, and awareness or unawareness related to the adoption option. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. John Knox is joining us now. He's the CEO of the Opt Institute, O-P-T. You can find them at optinstitute.org. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Appreciate it. Uh, Okay, I'd be remiss if I didn't lead off with a question about your namesake. Well, you know, I'm John Knox Jr., so the John Knox you're thinking about was a little before me. (laughs) Are you John Knox like the 16th? Or something like, probably, probably. Okay. My All parents, right, my parents named me Junior. But uh, <laughs> so, what should we call you? Do we call you John? Just John. All right, Just John. Well. All right, we're talking with Just John today, which I like as well. Um, John works with and for and leads the effort of the Opt Institute, which is a nonprofit research foundation and think tank dedicated to improving access to and support for private infant adoption. You should check out optinstitute.org. First of all, you're going to um you're going to get access to the research that we're going to talk about today that was commissioned by the Opt Institute and done with our friend George Barna at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. That's going to be the subject of our conversation this morning. But as you scroll down the website, you're going to see adoption by the numbers across the United States. Um, and then you're going to see this really cool feature called I Am That Kid. And I want you to go and visit the website and listen to these stories of incredible people who were adopted as kids um, as inspiration and encouragement um, on the adoption front today. So, John, talk with us, first of all, about um, the research that you all commissioned with um, George Barna, who is our dear friend and and comes and talks to w- with us about once a month. So talk with us about the um, uh, the research that you did with them and what you found. It was incredible. I learned so much with George and was, was so thankful that he would take on adoption and do this. And we learned we learned. Uh, who influences uh, pregnant women, and and it was it was very much a surprise. Uh, I would have expected going in that that outside of family that the that the largest influences would be friends, peers, the internet, those types of things. But but the the um, largest outside influence was doctors, which is where I found it very interesting for you to have Dr. Nixon just a few minutes ago. And and uh, uh, doctors, uh, the medical community, um, uh, uh, therapists, outsiders, counselors, those types of people have the greatest influence. What George taught me was that that 
so much is outsourced today. Parenting is outsourced today is the way he put it to me in in terms of looking at this and thinking about if you're faced with a crisis, you turn to you, you turn to the expert, and so so often they uh, they turn to the medical community. Uh, the faith community, unfortunately, is is way down on the list. Twelve um, percent, I think, is 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 where um, is where the church came in on who influences a woman's decision. So, just in the top line summary. Um... I was really struck by the paragraph on women's childhood experiences. Um, You all surveyed women of childbearing age and completed a lot of interviews with, um, with, you know, qualified women in terms of uh, of these conversations. Um, And I'm going to read this paragraph. When asked to identify the situations they had experienced as a child before age 13, the most common experience was undergoing physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. That was listed by nearly half of the women, 45%. About a third, 36%, were raised in a single-parent home. Three out of 10 um, had spent time during their childhood dependent upon government aid or welfare, and one out of every 10 had been in foster care. Overall, 5% of the women had been adopted as an infant, 7% adopted after their infant years. Um, those numbers are pretty staggering. When we talk about the decisions that women of childbearing age are making today, they are influenced by the realities of um, of the abuse they experienced when they were little children and the privation and the realities of being raised in single parent homes. They are. I mean, it's it's a it's a terrible position that people are in in that regard, and. Um, and so many of them that have ended up um, in the foster care system as a result of, of, of those families and that. And unfortunately, a lot of people confuse the foster care system with private infant adoption. Uh, uh, and I don't even like the name. One of the things we learned with George is, is, is trying to, to put words around how, what, what we call that. We talk about private infant adoption because we're trying to separate that from, from the government adoption under foster care. But private infant adoption really today means open adoption and an open meaning it's the woman's choice. Uh, uh, one of the things George's research showed is that 30 million women don't even know that under adoption they get to pick the family uh, mm. that's going to adopt that's going to adopt her child i mean that's amazing to me that there would be 30 million women that don't know that that's where i think we need today to call it open adoption i mean it doesn't mean that the birth mother has to have an open relationship with the family that's adopting it but it's but she's open in that she gets the choices she gets to pick the family I mean, it's so different today than it used to be. She gets to pick the family. She can have her own lawyer, her own advisor, her own counselors to help her with grief counseling and in dealing with it. And she can be in control. It's really empowering to women. And it's gotten lost today. Um, it, adoption is not even considered in an unwanted pregnancy. I mean, back when I was adopted, there were hundreds of thousands of kids that were adopted in the 50s. And, and today, uh, there, there was less than 20,000 children placed for adoption last year. 
I mean, there's 700,000 families who would like to adopt a, adopt an infant and 20,000 available in the United States because it's just not considered. It's, it's like a forgotten option. When somebody thinks about an unwanted pregnancy, they simply think about keeping the child or having an abortion. And, um, and that's what I've been charged with to try and, and help make a difference. And that's where we formed the Opt Institute. That's where we mentioned, you mentioned at the top, the I Am That Kid campaign. That's been a fun campaign. We've got 10 new videos that'll be coming out on that site over the next uh, month or six weeks that have already been shot. These are Olympic athletes and professional athletes and business leaders and different people, all of us that telling our stories that, that these birth mothers think that the kid's going to come back someday and hate them for placing them for adoption. And our feelings are the exact opposite. What I keep finding from, from all of these people is they are so thankful for having been placed in great families and uh, they come back and, 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 and it's, it's redemptive. It's redemptive to the birth mothers. It's redemptive to um, uh, found siblings that they meet later and different things that, that they're able to come back and, and share with. And it's, it's a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. We're talking with John Knox from the Opt Institute. You can find what we're talking about today and tons of great resources and stories, including the I Am That Kid campaign videos at Opt, O-P-T, Opt institute.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at myfaithradio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We need to be When you think about adoption as an option... Um, What do you know about that? And how would you connect uh, a woman who was experiencing an unexpected pregnancy and wanted to explore her options? How would you help her um, find the truth about what her options really are? Would you even be a person who was safe to tell? Um, Would you be a person to whom she might turn? We're talking with John Knox from the Opt Institute. You can find what we're discussing today and lots of resources at Opt, O-P-T, Institute. It's like the beginning of option or the middle of the word adoption, optinstitute.org. John, what, do you, what are some of the things that you wish people knew about um, the experience that women are having when they, uh, when they have an unexpected pregnancy um, or what are you? What are some of the things you wish people knew in terms of connecting people with good resources? Wish people knew where to go easily to get good re- to to find the resources. If somebody's looking today, there's there's organizations like Brave Love um, or the National Council for Adoption 
Uh, either of those have have great information on their sites. They have uh, connections with licensed agencies and attorneys that can help them. Uh, going to um, a, a licensed, respected, uh, vetted uh, agency, I think, can be very helpful to them. And so, I think that's that's one of the things that they can do. And Brave, Brave Love is one organization that does does a great job on that. They serve. Uh, many agencies throughout the country, and so they have relationships with a lot of them that, that can connect with women and, and have some terrific stories on their site uh, that help explain that it's not an easy option, but it's a wonderful option. And that's, that's what I wish people could see. It's very biblically based. I mean, there's a reason very early in the Bible uh, that that God gives us Moses is the first open adoption. People act like open adoption is something new. Well, it was it was uh, it was very early on that we got the first story of open adoption, and uh, uh, I think people need to need to understand that and see that. I wish the church talked more about that. I wish they 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 talked about um, adoption more in the church today than exists. Yeah, adoption is certainly biblical. I mean, each one of us who are adopted uh, into the family of faith, uh, you know, I, that's how we get in. Um, and so uh, I do think that it is something that we understand on a theological level. Um, I'm not sure that everyone understands it on a practical level. We're not even sure, uh, John, to be perfectly honest, like, you know, how uh, I, I think of my friend Russell Moore, who just celebrated you know, the adoption more than 20 years ago of his two sons um, from Russia. Um, it, but I'm I'm not even sure, like, I, I know Russell has talked about the fact that, you know, like, people refer to, he's got lots of boys, and, you know, like, which ones are your real sons? Like, right, we're so broken that we ask dumb questions, terrible, terrible questions. Um, and so help us walk around a little bit in doing better. And maybe some of that uh, leads back to a conversation about, the research that you've that you've recently done with George Barna. You know, I'm commenting on that. Though, my real father is my father, right? The one that raised me, my mother and father. I mean, that's what is so terrific about being raised by by great parents who were who were who who raised me, and that feeling is there as an adopted kid. Uh, just as strong as it as it as it would be with a biological scenario. It is interesting to meet biological siblings and, and and birth parents and other things because there is a unique connection that God has made that's there. But it's not the same as 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 your parents on on who raised you and who they are. And uh, uh, that's what I hope we're able to share through some of our stories that are online. Uh, and, and that's yes about Barna. Barna's Barna's research is is um, is so telling on just what people don't know in terms of they they don't understand adoption being this wonderful loving option. It's it's interesting that we have. Uh, we have shame and guilt around adoption. We've eliminated in our society shame and guilt around being gay or abortion or other things as a society. It's 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 it's, it's crazy that so many people um, uh, think there's no shame and guilt around that, and then they put shame and guilt around adoption. 
And that's um, that's one of the things we're learning and 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 trying to figure out how we get rid of. I think part of it is changing the dialogue and simply talking about open adoption. And open adoption is is open where the woman's got the choice, but it's also an open relationship with God. She's open. Uh, she may not have a relationship with the birth parents. Uh, I mean, with the adoptive parents early on. But she may later in life. In my particular case, I went back and met my birth mother forty, almost forty years later, mm-hmm. uh, and and it was it was it was very telling and very beneficial for her. Um, um, so I think it's something that they need to think about. All right. So um, we're hearing from a number of listeners on our text line, which let me just remind everybody, you can always text me 877-933-2484. Elizabeth uh, says, I was 19 and pregnant. I had grown up in foster care, was adopted, and then due to abuse um, in the foster care system, I was later placed again. My son was placed for adoption through New Life Family Services. And 21 years later, well, here's a picture of him and me. So I love that. Elizabeth, um, we're going to encourage you to visit IamThatKid.com and find a way to share your story there. That's something people can do, right? Absolutely. And that's the redemption of adoption. That's a wonderful story right there about how you come back and how beneficial that is. I was having having dinner with my 98-year-old mother about a month ago. And, and this lady sits down at the table and she says, John there has, has started an organization called Adoption as an Option. And this other lady named Nancy was sitting next to me. She's probably 87 years old. And when she hears that I had started Adoption as an Option, she looks up at the whole table and says, I wish they had told me it was an option. Mm. And, Amen. and you just think about what that looks like later in your life, as opposed to the girl that just texted you that's talking about how wonderful that is to be able to look back and see Amen. what happened 21 years before. Yeah, Lori, uh, Lori's on the line as well. And she says, I bear witness to all that he's talking about. I have an incredibly redemptive meeting with my biological family. I'm so thankful. So we're going to send her as well to I am that kid.com to share her story. Hey, if you've got... um. You've got a, a adoption story that you want to share. If you are that kid, um, we want to hook you up with the Opt Institute, optinstitute.org. I am thatkid.com for the storytelling portion of it. If you're looking for um, resources, maybe you are experiencing an unexpected pregnancy and you would love um, to know what your options are, bravelove.org adoptioncouncil.org. I'm going to link to all of them in the show notes today, which will be posted later along with the podcast, everywhere you get your podcasts um, and at myfaithradio.com. John, what a delight to uh, to make your acquaintance today and get to know you a little bit. I hope we can talk further in the future because people have lots of questions about this. I would love to, Carmen. I appreciate you amplifying this and having it on your show. Absolutely. Adoption is an option. Check out the research at the Opt Institute, O-P-T, optinstitute.org, and the stories. They're so great. They're linked also at that website, or you can go and and, uh, see them directly at IamThatKid.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio.
All right, I am uh, leaving you for the rest of the week in the capable hands of Paul Perot, Ryan Mitchell, and Dr. Peter Kapsner because I am going to head to Colorado crazy early tomorrow morning to spend some time with some other women in uh, media ministry. I'm going to speak at the God's Radio Girl Retreat in Estes Park. So I will be away for the remainder of the week, but I'll be praying for you. you be praying for me. You know, travel mercies, wisdom, discernment, refreshment, all those good things. Um, I'm going to entrust you um, to one another and the fellowship of the Spirit. Be in the Word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves. Have a great uh, week and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.